Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We are a nation of immigrants. For hundreds and hundreds of years, we've opened our arms to those seeking to come to America. And for many of those years, New York has been ground zero. But the immigrant story, even in or especially in New York, has not been one of ease. The process and pain of assimilation, the fear of the other, the competition for resources have always created wedges between the various immigrant groups and with the so-called nativists. But why is it that these issues seem to repeat themselves over and over and over again like a kind of Groundhog Day? The issues are the same, only the ethnic roots change, yet we never seem to learn the lesson. My guest, historian Tyler Anbinder, looks at the history through the lens of the 400-year epic history of immigration in New York, from its founding to the present. Tyler Anbinder is a professor of history at the George Washington University. He's the author of two previous prize-winning books, and it is my pleasure to welcome Tyler Anbinder here to talk about City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. Tyler, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. One of the things that, that is remarkable about this story, particularly the sweep of so many years in looking at the immigrant history of New York, is how many of these same issues, issues that we're still dealing with today, seem to repeat themselves over and over and over again, and we seem to learn so little from them. It's true. Uh, you know, my book looks at looks at immigrants in New York from the 1620s all the way to the present, and, and you find in the early 1600s the very same issues we're dealing with today, issues of, you know, can these immigrants really become part of mainstream society? Uh, a big question has always been, uh, does, does the religion of immigrants disqualify them from citizenship? Does, does it make them incapable of becoming Americans? And we ask this about every generation of, of immigrants. So every generation of immigrants has, has scared Americans, and yet every generation of Americans has, has managed to end up uh, becoming part of mainstream society. But we forget that. And is it fear of the other that creates this happening over and over again, or are there some other underlying and, and more powerful issues? Well, I, I, think, I think in part it's, it's just fear of strangers. I think that's an innate human characteristic. Um, th there's also running throughout the story the belief that um, that the United States is, is somehow fragile and that, that uh, any change to society is something that will, that will ruin the, the American fabric, that will ruin American prosperity, that will ruin American security. So, so time and again, Americans have thought this. The, the Dutch thought this about the English. The English thought this about the Irish. The Irish thought this about the Germans. The Irish and the Germans thought this about the Italians and, and so on all the way up to today. There was even a fear of Italian immigrants and, and, and fear of terrorism at one point from the Italian immigrants in New York. Yes, this is a, a very much a forgotten part of the story that a that hundred years ago, uh, Italian immigrants were the, were the immigrants who were feared as terrorists. And, and Italian immigrants, uh, immigrant anarchists in particular, carried out a series of bombings that, that really uh, terrorized uh, Americans. You had uh, bombs sent to dozens of high-ranking American officials, including the attorney general, including U.S. senators, judges, uh, people of that sort. And then the climax of that bombing campaign took place in 1920 when a, a bomb was detonated on Wall Street 
that killed nearly 40 people and injured hundreds. Uh, so, so a hundred years ago, I- Italian immigrants were considered just as uh, just as fearful to many Americans as Muslim immigrants are considered by many Americans today. Of course, there was also fear of Catholic immigrants. The religious issue played a part over and over again. Yes, back in the mid-19th century, so about 150 years ago, uh, Catholic immigrants were considered very much a a threat to American society. Um, Native-born Protestant Americans believed that that Catholic immigrants just could never become true Americans, that they were subservient to the wishes of a foreign religious leader, in this case, the Pope, um, that they were prone to violence, um, that they were ignorant and uh, would not go to and would not go to school, that their parents would parents wouldn't send their children to school, uh, that Catholicism was a, a religion of, of ignorance and monarchy. And, and Americans feared that that Catholic immigrants would uh, threaten to literally to overthrow American democracy and, and return and return the United States to a uh, uh, make it a make it a monarchy like the rest of the European nations. Mm-hmm. When one reads the literature of that period, the stories of that period, the newspapers of that period, you you could almost substitute the the words like jihadists and Muslims and mosques. I mean, it's it's remarkable. It's true. Literally, every single thing said about um, Muslim immigrants today as to why they uh, pose a threat was said about Irish Catholics 150 years ago. Um, not only the things I've, I've just mentioned, but but other things such as um, that they're inassimilable. That that not only do they do was it said that Catholics um, could not assimilate, but would not. That they 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 purposely resisted it. That they were so entrenched in their foreign culture that that uh, and and stayed so separate from mainstream America uh, that they could never become part of the American fabric. Um, yeah, every single thing said about Muslims today was said about Irish Catholics 150 years ago. And of course, the counter-argument then, as it is now, and, and New York is is a great microcosm of this, is the idea of America or New York as a melting pot, that the diversity really had a powerful and positive impact. Yes, uh, you know, New Yorkers are very proud of that idea, that that what makes New York great is the fact that so many different peoples have come to the city and added something new to it, that it never stays static, that it's constantly changing. Um, and and that, that's the kind of thing that's been, Americans have debated for a long time. There have been periods in American history where that idea seemed more palatable and, and other ideas where, other times I should say, when Americans wanted to, uh, you know, as, as they said back then, kind of close the gates and, and, and not let any more people into the United States. That was an especially strong impulse in the 1920s when the centuries-long tradition of, of pretty much open borders uh, came to an end and, and the United States decided not to let very many immigrants in at all. And, and those who would be let in had to be mostly from Northern and Western Europe. And, and Congress decided in the 1920s that that they did not want the ethnic or religious makeup of the American people to change anymore. So they, they changed the immigration law so that uh, the immigrants coming into the United States in the future would precisely match the ethnic and religious uh, background of Americans at that time. 
Talk a little bit about how over and over again this issue, the issue of immigration and various aspects of what we've been talking about, would become a political issue. Immigration has, has for centuries been been a political issue, and it breaks down, in, in a sense, very similarly to, to the way you see it today. Mm-hmm. So, so in the 19th century, you had, uh, you had nativists, most famous example being the Know Nothing Party that, that wanted, uh, interestingly, in, in the 19th century, nobody wanted to restrict immigration. Uh, nobody wanted to seal the borders or build a wall or or even uh, ban certain religious groups or, or people from certain countries. Uh, everybody thought immigration was a good idea. What the know-nothings wanted to do was uh, take the political rights away from immigrants. So make immigrants wait, for example, 21 years until they could vote rather than the, the five years that they had then and that we still have today. Um, that didn't end up, that, that movement for a, for a brief time had a big following, but it ended up fading away as, as Americans became more embroiled in the slavery issue. And then in the late 19th century, it, it becomes an issue again. Then it's focused uh, largely on uh, economic issues and whether, uh, whether foreign-born workers posed a threat to, to native-born workers. And then, as I said, in the, in the early 20th century, the focus was more on uh, was, was less economic and more on the makeup of the American population and, and this belief that, that Jews and Italians in particular could, could never become, quote-unquote, true Americans. Um, and, and, and then finally in the 1960s, uh, the issue kind of flipped in a sense that, that the big movement was to undo these, these uh, racist restrictions that had been put in place in the 1920s. And so in the 1960s, uh, initially led by President Kennedy, uh, and then after his death by others, you have the movement eventually successful uh, under Lyndon Johnson to to turn back the restrictive legislation and the ban on immigrants from uh, from Asia, uh, and to no longer give any one country more immigration slots than another. Which all led to immigration reform, which had to happen again in the 1980s. Yes, and, and ever since... Uh, what happens is you have you have very much unintended consequences from uh, from the laws that's passed in 1965, and a couple there are basically two big unintended consequences. The first was that law in 1965 for the first time puts a limit on immigration from Mexico. There had never been an, a limit on immigration from Mexico before, and as a result, there was a very old tradition of Mexicans crossing uh, into the United States. Uh, getting agricultural work in the fall and then going back to Mexico again. When this this, uh, limit on immigration from Mexico is put in place, it creates for the first time this problem of illegal immigration because the number of slots uh, allowed to Mexico is not nearly at the level that there had been this traditional uh, cross-border migration. Uh, and, and then the other, so, so that's part of the, the immigration reform issue. And then the other unintended consequence of the 1965 law was um, nobody in Congress realized uh, that when they, they made the law so that it gave priority to the relatives of people already in the United States, and that ended up having a snowball effect because one immigrant would come to the United States, and then that immigrant's relatives could come in unlimited numbers to the United States to join them. And then the relatives of those relatives could come in unlimited numbers. And that snowballed uh, so that you ended up uh, you ended up with an immigration system that, that favored the relatives of people already here 
uh, and, and made it very hard for anybody else except for the very highly skilled to get into the country. And so those combined with the, the issue of illegal immigration have become the two, the two big uh, issues around immigration reform. And in this history that we've been talking about, to what extent was deportation ever really talked about as a significant issue? Deportation as a, as a means of controlling immigration has, has, has not been widely used for most of American history. Um, it was a state prerogative in the early part of American history. So in the, a little-known fact is that in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, Massachusetts, which we think of today as the home of lots of Irish, actually deported tens of thousands of Irish immigrants who were uh, impoverished. That was, the only, that was the only crime they had committed was being poor, and uh, Massachusetts deported poor Irish immigrants back to Ireland. Then deportation becomes a bigger issue once Ellis Island is opened in the 1890s. Uh, immigrants who came to the United States who were led into the country, but then eventually uh, declared uh, that they had entered the country illegally or, or no longer met the qualifications. Again, that was typically because you were poor, though sometimes you had committed a crime. Um, those people were deported too. Um, but deportation on, on the scale that we see today has, is really a new thing. Uh, Americans have really never sent very many immigrants back uh, even illegal immigrants back uh, back out of the United States until uh, the last decade or so. Have there ever been periods where there has been a more positive framework with respect to immigration, where there was a more welcoming environment at any particular point? Well, what I would say is that through most of American history, Americans have been welcoming of immigrants. Um, and, and so the times when they're not welcoming it, it are, are, I think, in a sense, rare. I, what you have is you have simultaneously you have uh, a welcoming and uh, a bit of fear. And so there's always a majority of Americans who are welcoming of immigrants and, and then the minority who, who are more fearful. Uh, the exception, I, I think, is the 1920s when that big uh, immigration ban is put into effect. But... But I, I think what you can say is early in American history, the United States was even more welcoming because the nation seemed so big and the population seemed so small. And that explains why, for instance, the Know Nothing Party in the 1850s, who, who we think of as, as the most successful anti-immigrant political party in American history, actually never even wanted to ban immigration or even limit it at all. So, so I think the earlier you go in American history, the more welcoming Americans were. What about the issue of highly skilled immigrants? You referred to them uh, a little while ago. And to what extent has that been, how long has that been part of the discussion? That really only became part of the discussion um, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So up until, up until relatively recently, um, Americans didn't really expect most of their immigrants to be highly skilled, or even many of them. But they, the idea had always been that each generation of immigrants does the work that no uh, Americans want to do. And that's typically picking crops, uh, cleaning houses, taking care of the ill or the elderly, um, digging ditches, hauling construction material, stuff like that. I mean, if, if you think about it, you look at a construction site today and you see those huge cranes, you know, uh, for most of American history until relatively recently, all the work that was done by, that's done now by those cranes and those steam shovels, 
uh, was done by human beings. All that hauling of, of equipment and material was done by hand, by people, up wooden ladders. So, uh, so for the most part, that was how Americans looked at immigrants, people to do that work. It's only when you get to the Cold War and you, and you get to the, the, the space race and, and the race to build bigger and, and better weapons of destruction uh, then Americans start rethinking their, their immigration policy and start thinking, you know, we could, we could use those, those Italian physicists and those uh, Eastern European Jewish scientists, uh, you know, people like Einstein and so forth. And that's when they start thinking there ought to be an exception for the highly skilled. Um, and that's put in, uh, in 1952, there's the first exception uh, to the immigration law put in for skilled uh, people. Uh, 52, right at the height of the Cold War. And then that's uh, expanded it with the 1965 law. Has there been any consistency with respect to how long it has taken various immigrant groups to assimilate? Have some assimilated more quickly than others, more slowly than others? Because that is, as you were talked about before, has certainly always been part of the dialogue with respect to immigrants. It has always been a part of the, of the conversation, yes. Uh, I, I think the main answer is with the one exception, and that is English immigrants who have always fit into the United States relatively quickly compared to all the other groups. With the exception of the English, it typically takes a generation. And, and so one of the big myths of American history is that, you know, that previous generations of immigrants assimilated faster than today's immigrants do. Because the fact is, no generation of immigrants assimilated very quickly. Every, gen- every adult immigrant tends not to assimilate as much as native-born Americans want them to. They still think of the United States, they, they, they still think of the place of their birth as their quote-unquote home. They still pine for home. They eat the foods of their homeland. They play the games of their homeland. They speak their native language. Um, and, and that's mostly until they die. And, and we tend to think of, of, uh, of past generations assimilating more quickly, but that's, that's really not the case. Every generation complained that their immigrants didn't assimilate, even including the Irish. So, uh, so no, that, that's really not changed, with the exception, as I said, of English immigrants, who, who because of their English language skills, because of the, the long ties between England and the United States, uh, ha- have kind of had an advantage. Is there any reality to the fact that immigrant populations, because they tend to be self-selecting in terms of, of willing to make the voyage, make the effort to come to the U.S. or come to New York, in, in the case of your, in your book, that, that they bring with them a certain amount of, of talent, a certain amount of grit, a certain amount of skills because they were willing to, to make the effort? Absolutely. That's a great question. And, and the answer is an unqualified yes. The various studies have shown that, uh, that immigrants possess an ambition that their fellow countrymen who stay behind tend not to have. And so the United States uh, benefits from this ambition, this drive, uh, that immigrants bring to the United States. So, so uh, it, it's very rare that, that immigrants are, uh, are going to be lackadaisical. They very much want to work hard, save money to either bring other family members over or 
more typically to start their own businesses. Uh, immigrants are much more likely to start businesses than native-born Americans. And, and so in, in those ways, you're, you're absolutely right. I- immigrants bring a quality, uh, although in a sense, it's, it's, it's kind of an American quality. Mm-hmm. And it, in part, it's an American quality because the United States has always welcomed those ambitious immigrants. To what extent have immigrant groups been willing to become politically active? We certainly know a lot about the the Irish, for example. What about other immigrant groups? That's varied over time. So you've had some immigrant groups that become active in politics relatively quickly. Probably the most famous example of that is is the Irish immigrants of the American Civil War period uh, who become involved in uh, Tammany Hall and democratic politics in in, in New York. Um, Eastern European Jewish immigrants tended to vote more quickly than, than say, the Italian immigrants who came to New York at the same time. And so it's varied from group to group, in, in part depending on their language skills. Uh, the Irish there, again, had something of an advantage over, say, the, the German immigrants who came at the same time. Uh, but also it depends to some extent on their politicization um, before they arrive in America. So... So what you have in common between the Irish and the Eastern European Jews in New York is both felt a sense of grievance um, in their homeland, and that was in part why they left. And so the Irish had become very politicized because of, uh, because of the feeling that they had been uh, you know, mistreated and disenfranchised uh, by, by the English in Ireland. And, and so they come very anxious to become politically active. And Eastern European Jews, some to uh, a similar story in the sense that that laws uh, in the Pale of Settlement in Russia had taken away um, most of their political rights. And so that group, too, was very anxious to get back political rights uh, in coming to the United States. Other groups uh, that were focused more on on, uh, economics in terms of why they came to the United States uh, have tended to focus more on economics than they when they arrived and therefore become interested in politics in the United States more slowly. I mean, it's interesting the degree to which the politics of the homeland, the politics of the place that they came from, really shaped how they acted, how they responded once they got to America. It really does. So, so for example, with, with Italians, um, Italian, uh, most Americans, most Italian-Americans come, had come from southern Italy, a place where... Um, they had they had been disenfranchised, but but had felt kind of a hopelessness of the political situation, and, and so that had uh, taught them, in a sense, to focus on other things, economic advancement over political gain. And so you see, Italians in uh, New York are, are much slower to to vote and to nominate their their fellow immigrants for political office. To what extent did the rest of the country? historically look to New York, look at the New York experience with respect to immigrants and immigration in terms of trying to understand whatever issues they may have had? Um, that's a great question. But uh, Americans looked at, looked at New York kind of in, in two ways. So there, there was a part of the country that would look at New York and say, thank God that's not us. Uh, New York is, is too heterogeneous, too crowded, um, too dirty as a result of that crowding. Um, they didn't want America to be like that. 
and, and they were happy that to them New York was this this immigrant melting pot that that was very separate from their experience. But then, but then there were a lot of other places in the United States that, that were very much kind of mini New Yorks, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, and even lots of, of smaller cities in the United States that we forget a hundred years ago were, were really mini melting pots, whether that's, you know, Toledo, Ohio, or Fall River, Massachusetts, um, and just all over the United States in, in in, in the 1920s, you have, you have far more immigrants in the United States than as a proportion of the population uh, than you have now. And so, and in the 1860s, the same thing, a, a very high percentage of the population uh, is immigrants. So, so there's part of the country that, that looks and says, thank God we're not like that. And part of the country that looks at New York and says, we are like that. There's also the question of the degree to which the immigrants stayed in New York and in some cases moved out of New York, moved west, or moved to other parts of the country. Yes, that's a very big part of the, of the New York immigration story, is, is for every immigrant who, who stays in New York, there are two or three who start in New York, uh, but end up moving someplace else. And so it was very typical, you know, let's say if you were an Italian immigrant in the, around 1900, to... Uh, move to New York City to work as a day laborer, uh, but then maybe through your network of of uh, fellow immigrants from from your part of Italy, learn that ah, there there are better paying jobs in Massachusetts or in in Illinois or uh, or in San Francisco for that matter, and to eventually move to those places. And, and those places were especially attractive because uh, you were much more likely to be able to buy your own home. Or, or buy a piece of land, say, if you wanted to go into, you know, like some New York Italian immigrants did into the wine business in California, um, you're much more likely to be able to do that if you move west than if you stay in the crowded and expensive east. So, so that's very much part uh, of the immigration story, that, that movement out of New York. But, but that's a part of the story that isn't, isn't often told. Tyler Anbinder, his book is City of Dreams, the 400-year epic history of immigrant New York. Tyler, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.